Welcome to My Dog Ate My Book Report, a podcast where two weirdo 30-somethings take turns introducing each other to a formative book from childhood the other has never read to see if some magic is held up. I am Ren, they he, and I am more of a mouse with a moped sort of fella. Motorcycles are super dangerous and noisy. I need to tell you the story about when my brother burned himself on a motorcycle. Yeah. What, what about immediately? <laughs> <laughs> okay fine um my grandfather had a motorcycle and if we you know behaved and stuff he would you know take us for rides on it but um my mother was very not super excited about the motorcycle so we knew that if we ever got hurt it was game over for the motorcycle rides um and one day, a couple of days after a visit to our grandfather, my mom realized that my brother hadn't changed his socks in several days. And after a slight argument with my then, I think, five-year-old brother, uh, she wrestled the sock off of him and realized he was covering up a huge burn he got on his leg from, I think, the exhaust pipe of the motorcycle. But as a tiny child, he didn't know how to take care of it. So it was obviously like already getting infected and stuff. And it was super gross. And the sock was like sticking to it. This is not a good podcast story. It's really gross. That's why I wasn't going to say it. Um, but yeah, we, we were not allowed to ride the motorcycle anymore after that, which was why Corey was hiding it, because he knew that that would probably happen. I injured myself on a bicycle once. A bicycle or a motorcycle? bicycle which might be why i never upgraded to a motorcycle <laughs> i uh i was i was participating in an ill-advised activity which was riding my bicycle barefoot uh Ooh. i was uh this was probably like first or second wow. grade age maybe um and at one point, I just like one of my my foot slipped off the pedal and like wedged between the front wheel and the support of the front wheel, so it just kind of like shredded the sole of my foot. It it, it oh, probably gross, was not gross. as bad as it seemed <laughs> at the time, but it was definitely like pretty pretty painful at the time and I, I i when i went inside my mom got out like all bandages and stuff like uh significant quantities of bandages i don't think we ever went to the doctor uh about it or anything so i imagine it was fairly superficial but i definitely never basically just didn't go outside without shoes on after that probably much less get a book get on a bicycle That's, that... yeah that sounds safer yeah, my brother definitely went to the hospital. Had to get treated. Yeah. It, was, it was bad. <laughs> anyway, I'm Brandon, he, him, and I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe like a like a ferret on a like one of those one of those trikes that has two wheels in the front and one in the back. Oh. There's still motorcycles, I guess, but. I thought there were two Those wheels in the back exist. and one in the front. Those are both things. Oh. 
That makes you sound more like a circus act. Are you like balancing plates I, on a I stick sure while not, you ride this thing? Because that's not going to end well. <laughs> well, today it's a me pick, as you probably know by now, because I'm the one that did the intro. And today I have selected The Mouse and the Motorcycle by Beverly Cleary. It is a 1965 children's chapter book about a juvenile mouse. That makes him sound like... I, I couldn't find a good word for... Like, he's like a teenager age mouse. You know, whatever. Named Ralph, who lives in an aging hotel. He struggles with coming out from under his overbearing and overprotective family's grip, while at the same time befriending a boy who is staying at the hotel for the weekend. It's a bit of a coming-of-age, bit of a magic light adventure story because you know the aforementioned motorcycle is a toy that belongs to the boy that ralph can actually make run like a real motorcycle by making you know motorcycle burring noises I, I can't reproduce that with my mouth no i can't do it um <laughs> and he can also talk to the boy so so there's that level of sort of magical uh unexplained magic going on but he can only talk to the boy and one member of the hotel staff, but not any women, because they are silly. We'll get into that. In terms of content warnings, I would say this book displays a fair amount of casual sexism, which was, to be sure, you know, a product of its time, as much as I hate that term. But there, there is that. And there is a little bit of mention of uh, mice dying, but as a past tense. No mice die in the process of this story. It's definitely a book that makes me anxious while I'm reading it. Because I, I don't know, I get very invested in stories of little woodland creatures and just worried that dangerous humans are going to harm them in some way. But that's not really content warning, just my own ah! anxiety about small fuzzy creatures getting hurt. So, uh, I read this when I was quite young. I would have to guess second grade or so. And uh, my memories, you know, were a little fuzzy at that age. And I'm going to use that memories or fuzzy justification to explain that this is not the book I thought it was. <laughs> when I started reading it, I was so perplexed. Because what I thought this book was, was what I found out when I was doing research on it was its sequel, Runaway Ralph. That's definitely the one I read first. And I, I don't know if, you know, when I was six or whatever, I had the concept of a prequel, but I think I thought that this book was like a prequel or something like that. Cause I know I read it, but like later. Cause uh, Runaway Ralph, which I have not read, but I intend to after this is wonderful. Uh, but it takes place in like a summer camp or something. So I uh, I was just so confused as to why this was happening in a hotel. <laughs> um, this was more or less what yeah. I expected because I did see the film version at some point in school. I remembered very little about it, but I know that I saw it. But I looked up I looked up on YouTube to try to find a trailer of the film. And I couldn't, but I found like a three minute snippet of it and it's horrible. Yeah, I don't know. My, my recollection of the movie is so vague 
all I really remember is that there was a mouse that rode a motorcycle and that it happened in a building. Uh, I didn't remember it was a hotel specifically, but I, I really only had memories of seeing him ride the motorcycle like around a hallway or like things like that. Certainly not a summer camp. But uh, I had no real recollection otherwise of what transpired in the story. So, From what it looked like in the little snippet of the movie was that the mouse parts were stop motion. But it made Ralph so strangely like angular and jerky and scary looking. So it's hard to say whether or not, you know, the magic holds up because I feel silly about how this is not the book I thought it was. Uh, but I definitely liked it, and it made me remember some of the stuff I liked about Ralph's later adventures. Because uh, he's a he's a fun little fun little guy. He's kind of like a Disney protagonist of mice because he just wants to like go out on adventure. He doesn't have an "I want" song, but there there would have been one. <laughs> but as much as a as he does want adventure, I did find it uh, kind of cute that at the end, when he was given the choice to go, what was his name? Keith? Keith yeah. What was named Keith? I think. Yeah, Keith was like, hey, do you want to come with me and live with me in a cage in my bedroom? And he was like, no, I'm going to stay here with my family. <laughs> Which, to be fair, I think was probably more of a doesn't want to live in a cage situation. But, um, yeah, that that struck me as a very reasonable thing. I don't think of, um, you know, these like older children's chapter books as really having uh, much in the way of world building because they're all so short. But uh, coming coming back at, at books for this age range, I'm realizing that that is kind of erroneous because there was... There was a lot of interesting, like, tiny little tidbits of world building in this that that I really liked. Uh, in particular, the kind of morbid parts where Ralph talks about how his father died because he, uh, he carried a, an aspirin pill around in his cheek pouch and it dissolved and poisoned him. And um, the aunt who got stuck in a suitcase and carried away. So there's there's all this little like mention of the sort of human caused dangers in the mouse world, which I little little brief world building tidbits for what life is like. I mean, we all know that that aunt is somewhere living her best life, though, right? Like, she's <laughs> that's right. They they described her as someone who liked the finer things in life, and she hopped into a suitcase because of like some silk fabric yeah. or something. I, either that, or or she's the equivalent of like one of the children in Willy Wonka. So so Ralph meets Keith because he falls into the waste paper basket beside Keith's little hotel room bedside table, and he's having a good little panic because he knows that when they empty the trash uh, containers, they go straight into incinerators. So so immediately, like in the first couple of chapters, there's this very real mouse about to die danger in kind of a horrifying way. Yeah, but and, and here's the thing. Um, when I 
started reading this book and got to that part. <sighs> My specifically the part less the waste paper basket part, but the driving the motorcycle off the nightstand part. My brain immediately produced a, a specific anxiety on, on Ralph's behalf. And that anxiety was, I kid you not, worrying a, that he probably didn't have insurance. <laughs> Yeah, that was, now. it took me a moment to realize that was a completely ridiculous thing. <laughs> uh, but no, like I was, I was genuinely for a moment like, oh crap. I don't know what I thought when I was a kid at that part, but what I was thinking was maybe a little too science because I started thinking, oh, well, what if he's able to use the motorcycle as sort of leverage and he, if he goes back and forth back and forth back and forth enough times maybe he can tip the thing over or what if he can like ride along the inside of it like like a like a circus act sort of thing yeah yeah i i think physics wise he could tip it over with the use of the motorcycle it could be although He didn't really know how to make it go yet, right? Uh, That's true. He he That's just true. kind of walked it. Yeah. That was that was when he first, yeah. Oh, and the phone rang and yeah. knocked him off. That's I, why. I did appreciate the level of casualness with which all of the magical elements of this world were just there. Uh, nobody nobody was bothered by the notion that a boy and a mouse could talk to each other. Nobody really uh, questions the fact that if Ralph just makes engine noises, it makes the little toy vehicles go, because it's not just the motorcycle. He does it with an ambulance, too. Uh, and it's just like, it's just there. Everybody is totally chill about it. Um and and perfectly accepts that this is just how things are. And I kind of appreciated that, like, lack of feeling the need to explain the mechanics of everything going on, or have have a have an extended period where Keith is like, "Holy crap, you can talk!" and Ralph is like, "Well, of course I can. I'm a mouse." <laughs> yeah i that that's why when i was sort of describing the book i was like magical-ish because it's like it's magical but it's like normal it does kind of lead me into my my small gripe about the book's casual sexism there are really like no women characters in this book that are not taken jabs at for some silly woman trait. Uh, every woman is either like fussy and overbearing, or I want to speak to your manager Karen types, or silly girls who only care about boys and their hair. And there's a scene where Ralph sneaks into the room of a couple of, of teachers, and he tries to talk to them. 
because he's going on his little aspirin quest and they can't understand him. They just hear squeaking because of course, and this is a quote from the book, young women could not speak his language. This is definitely something I wouldn't have noticed as a child, but reading it now, it's just so glaring to me how much just, like I said, casual sexism is in this book. And the author is a woman. So I, and I couldn't really find anything about, you know, the topic, but I, my hypothesis is that in 1965, as a woman writer, you probably had to make sure that you, you know, were one of the guys in some capacity. So it kind of comes off to me as like, I don't know, internalized sexism or to appease male publishers taking jabs. Yeah. I, I don't know. These are just my assumptions. I, I feel like I've definitely heard um, contemporary authors talk about sort of the, the uh, ingrained, internalized sort of misogyny that was kind of hard to escape. It could be something that Beverly Cleary never even thought about, just, just, you know, put in there. But the thing that it, like, sort of steamrolled in me was thinking, I read this when I was a small kid, and I didn't think anything of it. So it sort of perpetuates this cycle where I internalize it, and then I know that I definitely went through long periods of internalized sexism. Uh, it's just It's just this cycle. <laughs> And it's, it's there and present from books that I read when yeah. I was tiny. And like some of it is also just that like, I think, I think with this book in particular, um, as with, I imagine a lot of, a lot of books that we may have read when we were younger. Um, it's easy for that stuff to also to kind of uh, disappear into like adults don't understand kind of stuff. Because, like, there aren't any... None of the female characters in this book are Keith's age, you know? Um, so, I think it's easy... If there is any takeaway when you're younger, it's easier to consciously sort of recognize the fact that they're adults and, like, everybody... You don't like when your mom gives you a bedtime and stuff, right? So it's like, okay. But even though there is a definite gendered divide... Um. yes but at the same time he can talk to the adult uh, bellhop man and the there's not that many other male characters in the book but the ones that are there are very sympathetic like the father is clearly like a very nice chill guy who just wants to visit this nice hotel and be perfectly happy about it and the wife is just ah this place oh, see I did not read the father that way at all <laughs> Um, I read the father as the sort who is like, I've decided that the family is going on vacation and I'm deciding what the vacation is because I'm the man, right? Even though you have a car alarm happening behind you. Yeah, it's somewhere. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I I definitely read Keith's father as also um, kind of crappy. Although he's not 
in the scene as much as Keith's mom. Uh, and then the other, the the guy staying in the other room with the dog is just constantly like really mean to that dog. Uh, so. Well. So, <laughs> I have a snippy thing to say to that, and a reasonable thing to say back to the father. You're right in that I I didn't quite notice that he was like yes this is the vacation we're going on. What I was in more referencing was the scene where they're they're in the room with Matt the bellhop and the wife is just like in front of the the worker of this hotel like this place is gross should we go somewhere else and the father is just like no this place is fine like trying to be polite to the guy and she's just like acting like he's a servant and that's that's what made me grumpy about the mother as for the as as for the guy with the dog that little yippy terrier was clearly being a little tyrant have you ever spent any time with a terrier yeah i grew up with a terrier oh <laughs> well fine but wait 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 wasn't your dog like a terrier or something else uh no so no it's dixie this, right this is, uh the dog my parents had when i was born actually uh and, and thus for for like a lot of my early childhood they had a west highland terrier named chaucer all of this to say uh i, I i'm definitely not disagreeing with the, the sexism element here just observing that i think were I to have read this, you know, 25 years ago or whatever, I don't think I, w- I think I would have noticed the adults are bad part rather than the women are not as cool or whatever part. I guess that's a good point. You have brought up a good point and I, I still think there, there was some sexism there, but I do think that you're right that all, almost, almost all of the adults are painted yeah. as, well, I mean, I mean, you're Not you're absolutely great. correct. There is like a lot of sort of casual sexism built in. Um, I think there's just like so many more like snide remarks about the women being fussy, or you know, the the one girl who just wanted to like stare at her hair in the mirror, and like there was just a lot of time spent on how how silly that girl was, and yeah. I also don't want to. Uh, shy away from the fact that there were some weight jabs as well, which I didn't love. Uh, talking about Ralph's uh, overweight uncles going for seconds, like, super greedy. And I was like, ooh, that's not very nice. Um, so yeah, internalized, you know, sexism, casual, weight, phobia, etc. 1965. <laughs> um... Yeah, I uh, I read this stuff um, on my phone on a Kindle app because um, I've tried to divest myself of having a bajillion physical books, which I would do if I uh, didn't police myself a bit. Um, so I I would highlight and make notes about things as I read uh, that that felt important. On the topic of dogs, I highlighted the sentence: "If there was one thing Ralph disliked, it was a Snoopy dog." And my note was, Ralph hates peanuts. 
that's great. <laughs> and I'm gonna be honest. I don't know if I can get along with a male who doesn't like peanuts. <laughs> I mean, but he does like peanuts. He's so happy when yeah, Keith brings he likes him some extra peanuts. Ex- peanuts, but like. But Bunch. like, look, I just Ralph would would definitely <laughs> bully Charlie Brown. Let's be clear. <laughs> so, uh, I I do have more notes and things, but uh, what what did you overall think about it? Uh, it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> um. Do you think you would have liked it? I think if, if I had it read it at like the correct age, yeah. Um, uh, as compared to the books we've read prior, this one does feel more like uh, reading it as an adult. Definitely, I, I just there's just certain a certain amount that I can't really connect with it. Um, uh, had had I read it when I was younger and, and like younger enough um i think i would have been been on board with it 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 might have gotten me to read the others um or at least the next one potentially um but as an adult there's a little not enough for me to latch on to i think to like really really dig it I, i don't dislike it it's fine i'm not like man this is a bad book i i i'm with you on that it was it's a book that I could have very easily read in one setting, but I was not compelled enough to do so. It took maybe four or five tries of me reading it before bed and just falling asleep. Um, and as I was reading it, I was definitely sort of feeling some of the nostalgic goggles like come off where... You know, I still had that feeling of like, oh, I remember what it was like reading this and feeling like it was so cool and magical, but not having that same experience again. Whereas like, you know, when I reread Hatchet, I'm just like, I am so here. I'm so into this. And uh, this didn't have the same, same thing, but it could also be a little bit more of a problem where a, a little bit of my schooling seeped through with Hatchet where, you know, when, when he would say things and I would be like, oh, but do snapping turtles actually lay their eggs at the same time that raspberries are in season in Canada? What about the ecology of this? Uh, in this one, I was just thinking just way too deeply about the, <laughs> you know, social structure of wild mice and... You know, which are also a thing that I have studied. <laughs> so, um, a little bit of the magic is gone off of the concept of talking mice for me as a, you know, animal, yeah, scientist of sorts. I, uh, <laughs> likewise, didn't have as much that I could like dig into ner- nerdy wise um, as some of the previous books that we read, but I did try a little bit to determine because this is what pinged my brain um the the motorcycle has rubber tires and i'm not sure that toy cars had rubber tires back then and i'm the sort of person who 
knows enough about that to feel like it might be inaccurate, but not enough to be sure. And I, I, I didn't look very hard. I, I couldn't find uh, a, a definitive, like, here's when toy cars started to use rubber tires. Are, are you... Are you saying that like the illustrations depicted as having rubber tires or the descriptions depicted as having rubber tires? Uh, the description. Okay, that's that's interesting because it was written in 1965, so if toy cars didn't have rubber tires then Beverly really Cleary like invented them. <laughs> well, that didn't exist. Okay, I guess it doesn't actually say rubber, it just has it had a good set of tires which I assumed mint rubber i don't know it's uh it was a it was a weird little nitpick that i did not find a definitive answer to um hmm. well i mean if it was based on illustrations yeah, i would say yes but i have i have a whole i have a whole rant regarding the illustrations so my my illustration nitpick is that in every cover and in the description of the motorcycle, it is red. It's red on every cover I've ever seen. Until this most recent version, which is the first version where they change all of the internal illustrations as well. So from, from 1965 to 2014, I think it is, uh, they used illustrations by Lewis Darling, who is an amazing children's book illustrator. He does this uh, sort of stippled, dotty illustration look, and I love it. I, uh, I will link some illustrations in our show notes of the original versions. Um, they decided for this you know, later edition, and I and I tried to look up why, but Harper was not about to tell me. Um, the uh, that's the imprint that published this version. Uh, they they just redid all of the illustrations, and also to add insult to injury, the cover depicts the motorcycle as being blue, which I. I don't know why they would change the illustrations because they were just little yeah. tiny works of I wonder, art. And the... I was going to say, I wonder if it was like a legal thing or like they didn't have the rights to the the earlier illustrations for some reason or or what. I, I sure tried to find out and I could not... Um, I will say, you know, because early early publications were, you know, different publishers, so so you might be right about that, but I couldn't find anything on the internet anywhere, and I was not uh, brave enough to email the publisher, <laughs> which I feel like, you know, I could have done that, but I I didn't. Maybe I will at some point be like, hey, stop doing a little podcast. Can you tell me, tell me why you didn't change the illustrations, please, sir, Mr. Harper, publisher, guy? And they'll probably ignore me, but that's fine. Okay. Uh, yeah, so something I didn't really think about when we set out on this journey of revisiting 
childhood books and everything was that a lot of the books we would be reading would have illustrations in them. Um, not, you know, because they're picture books necessarily, but certainly many books of, of a certain target audience have a, you know, an illustration every chapter or, or whatever. Um, and I've never really thought much about how those come to be. If it's, you know, part, part of the creative process of, of making the book in the first place, if it's a publisher thing. And, uh, I think Hatchet didn't have any illustrations. And then, uh, from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basley Frankweiler, the illustrations were done by E.L. Konigsberg as part of the story. So I think that's a good reason why they have never changed as far as I'm aware. Um, but I don't know what the process is when the author and the artist are different people, right? Um, yeah, I, I'd be interested in knowing, because I don't want to, like, trash this newer artist. It's just that I think part of, you know, the magic not quite being there is that for a book like this, the illustrations are part of the book. And without those pictures, the same ones, it's just like a different experience. And and the pictures in this one are more modern and kind of cartoony. Uh, and it just it just took me away from nostalgia. Yeah. So one of the funny things I did like, like, so the stuff I really liked about this book was, as I said, kind of the casual magicalness and willingness for for the, the those rules just to just to be accurate just and everybody just accepts them without much question uh i did get a little bit of a smile about when ralph establishes for us that uh he was descended from the mouse that ran up the clock Oh, yeah. When I first read that line, I was like, how would mice even know our fairy tales? And then he clarified. Yeah, yeah. Like, at first, what? The first time that <laughs> it happened, I thought it was just a jokey little illusion because it's just in narration. Uh, so I was yeah. just like, okay, uh, Beverly Cleary is being a little bit cute with us as readers a little flair to telling the story, but it comes back, not like in a bit, it's not like integral to the plot, but like it comes up again and it's like, oh no, clearly canonically in this world, Ralph is, is part of the Hickory Dickory Dock family, I guess, of mice. Um, <laughs> which, which maybe explains a lot. I don't know. Maybe that's where the mythology goes. I assume that there's like a huge mythology that kind of carries on from here and the mice meet aliens eventually or something. Um, <laughs> the, uh, and that revelation was actually in the part of the book that I actually really did dig was sort of the, the, the journey to find an aspirin for Keith and the whole like, adventure to the lower floor and everything that I was pretty on board with, you know, it was, it was basic and straightforward in a lot of ways. Um, but it definitely it felt like there was some peril there and there were problems that Ralph had to figure out how to solve. Um, 
you know, he got to bust out a different vehicle. He did this elaborate King's Quest style, uh, like setting up things exactly right. So the the dog in the room would start barking at the right time to create, to like get the guy on the elevator to take him outside. And then like, it was, it was very um, uh, adventure game, which for me is a pretty nostalgic feel. So I'm like, yep, that, that solution to the problem is so esoteric and uh, impossible to actually coordinate that if I had to solve that puzzle in, in, Monkey Island or something, and I'd be, yep, this is normal. <laughs> yeah, you're definitely right about that. Once I got to that point, I read straight on. Um, the the part that really dragged for me was sort of like the middle conflict, which really hinged upon a, a literary plot device, which I just hate. Um. I get very frustrated when there's a conflict that comes about because a character just doesn't explain everything truthfully. And the middle conflict is when Ralph loses the motorcycle because he was trying to save the motorcycle from the vacuum cleaner and the maid scooped it up into the sheets and so he lost it in the the hotel laundry. If he had just explained the maid had been vacuuming and, you know, all of this happened then Keith probably wouldn't have been so angry at him and Ralph wouldn't have had to go sulk off and have the little middle of the book sad, which really dragged on, if he had just explained. I hate when they rely on misunderstandings because of just like a very simple fix to create a and, and I was I was maybe a little bit let down by the fact that Ralph didn't recover the motorcycle during his adventure downstairs. Because um, it felt like that was the obvious thing, right? Where like part of his part of his adventure downstairs, he would eventually hit something that he can only surmount, some obstacle that he can only bypass if he gets the motorcycle back. And Maybe he finds the motorcycle somewhere where he's got to think about how to get to it or whatever. Um, instead, he goes through that entire adventure and then like the the bellhop uh, right at the end is like, oh, hey, little boy, is this your motorcycle that I found in the laundry? I mean, he was more knowing than that, but like. Yeah, the motorcycle actually takes yeah, very little yeah, of the book. Yeah, it, it, uh. It's really the mouse and the motorcycle yeah. and the toy ambulance. The, the mouse who was really fixated <laughs> on motorcycles because once he encounters the motorcycle, Ralph's character is completely fixated upon being a mouse that likes motorcycles uh, and how like th this, this or that was not important to mice who like motorcycles or this was not as, as uh this thing was a waste of time when you've had your paws on the handlebars of a motorcycle now or whatever the case may be. Um, he just, you know, which I found that sort of charming. I think it was meant to be kind of like funny. Um, and in a way it was, I think if I were younger, I would have, uh, some of that, some of that humor would have hit me more 
Um, as it is, as an adult, I'm kind of like, yeah, that's that's cute. Uh, if I if I were telling a story to a seven or eight year old, maybe I would also do that. I I have in my notes that the the story about the uh, father who died because of ingesting aspirin made me think in a little bit of a panic. Made me think about this time that I I walked up to my desk at work and we knew that there were mice there. They you know we had to store food in certain safe ways so that they couldn't get to them. But I got to my desk and I had a a little tube of Gorilla Glue, which is you know some badass glue. And mice had chewed all the way through it and eaten some of it. And I still think in horror about what life must have been for. What the rest of the brief life of those mice must have been when that glue hardened in their systems. I should probably edit this part out because it's really gruesome. I don't know why yeah. I'm saying it. It's being, horrible. Being a mouse um, <laughs> is dangerous. You gotta, you gotta not mess with people things. Yeah. I have a discussion question. Yep. If you were a mouse. Where do you think the comfiest and safest place like to what live kind of building? would be? I mean, any, I, any, any situation I think, the I building could be. Probably at the National Air and Space Museum, uh, where I would also run away to. Um. <laughs> I realize it's very close to your question from last time, but I feel like the parameters are different. Yeah, yeah. and I'm not entirely sure my, my answer is actually different um i feel like if what are you gonna eat at the national air and space museum and like look here's like if i'm a mouse the the shooting model of the uss enterprise would be really impressive (laughs) (laughs) what kind of no what kind of noise do you have to make to make that go like uh, let's see. To make the Enterprise, I didn't even think about making it. Okay, now I'm definitely on board with this uh, yeah. with this decision. Um, yeah, because you got to make it with your mouth. So probably like a whoosh. <laughs> All yeah. right, I guess you can you can pilot yeah. the shooting model of the Enterprise. It's just it's just six foot monstrosities just flying around the museum somehow it certainly didn't have as many sort of awards and accolades as our previous two selections it did receive some awards but not not newberry newberry style uh like i said it was written by beverly cleary who i found out actually only just died in 2021 Uh, she lived to be 104 which is impressive. Um, she wrote this book uh, being in- inspired from from two incidents. Um, the first is that um, she had a son who had a fever when they were on vacation and he was, you know, playing with cars and motorcycles at the time. And also uh, a neighbor had a shown her a small mouse that she'd accidentally trapped in a bucket and those two stories converged in her head and she 
created this whole this whole thing. Uh, like our first two authors, she did not set out to be an author. She was a librarian when she started writing children's books. Sort of out of out of the blue. Um, and uh, so yeah, there are two sequels. There's Runaway Ralph and Ralph S. Mouse. Uh, from my little amount of digging, Runaway Ralph is the book I thought it was where Ralph runs away and goes to a summer camp, which I'm excited to go revisit. And I don't remember what Ralph S. Mouse is at all. I'm sure I read it because I was very into these books as a kid. Um, she also is the author of all of the Ramona books, and I I don't know if you've read any of those. Um, I feel very sure, without really being able to remember much about them, that I at least read Ramona Quimby, age eight, and I may have read other Ramona books. I know that I have not read all of them. I read what I think was probably Beezus and Ramona. I could be wrong. The only thing I really remember is that it's about an older sister and a younger sister, and the younger sister's kind of a pest. And it was the first time I ever read the word paprika. It was the first time I ever read the word paprika. And because there's a scene where they're trying to cook dinner for their parents and they overuse paprika, which I don't think is possible, really. Um, but because I had only read that word for a really long time, I thought it was pronounced paprika. So, so that book, Beverly Cleary, is why I got made fun of in my 20s for saying paprika. That's not a, of historical significance, but I thought it was a funny anecdote. Um, the edition of the book that I got, which I think was a 50, 50th or something, it was, it was a... It's a recent edition, and it has a uh, foreword in it because it's, you know, so many years since it was written uh, by Kate DiCamillo, which I don't know if I'm saying that right, who wrote The Tale of Despero. Have you read that? Uh, I haven't, but I remember there was a movie, I think. Hmm. Well, that was, a, that was a 2003, you know, kids chapter book about mice. Which means I missed it as a kid, but I, I do know that I own it, and I've read the first few chapters because I picked it up as an impulse buy when I was waiting at a train station a few years ago. Um, but Kate DiCamillo um, wrote, writes this little foreword about how this book, you know, inspired her fascination with mice, and you know it's why she ended up writing this series about a little sword fighting mouse. Um, but I really liked this quote um, that she wrote. Um, it's been almost 50 years since I read about Ralph for the first time. And here I am, still believing that if I'm quiet enough, and if I believe enough, if I hope enough, a mouse might talk to me. I waffled about how many giant peaches to give this, because I feel like it's... <laughs> You know, me and rating systems, I always just kind of want to give everything a middle ground. I feel like giving this three out of five giant peaches. Some of the magic was still there. I love some little bits of world building, and I love how casual the magic is. 
I don't love the sexism. And I did have a hard time plowing my way through it. But that may have just been because I was reading at the end of my work yeah. day and I was tired. But I... I, I three, I've three out of five. also been a little bit uh, wishy-washy about whether I'm going like two and a half or like three. Trying to decide even like where where in our scale of book becomes like like is is lower than three quote bad because it's in the lower half or is it like not right um anyway i'm around three i think i i liked it fine uh i know i would have really dug parts of it when i was younger that i i don't have as much appreciation for now but um, it had a lot of charm in places, and it is it is a book that ultimately, if I knew a knew a young young kid who was just getting into chapter books or whatever, I'd potentially be like, here, here's this one. This is a good this is a good ride. Uh, yeah, for for you. So yeah, like like three also, I think. I do know that there are other books that involve small mice that I think I might like more, but you know, still thinking about all these books back with nostalgia goggles, it's hard to really say. I will be subjecting you to the cricket in Times Square. I feel like if we really wanted to, we could just do a podcast about books about mice, right? Like that's, that's a a big (laughs) genre, right? Thank you all for listening. Next episode will be a Brandon pick. What uh, what have you so selected? So I have us? decided, um, you know, with our first two picks, I, I followed up your tale of survival with one of my tales of survival. Um, and so here uh, I'm going to follow up your story with a motorcycle in it with one of my story with a motorcycle in it. Two motorcycles, in fact. Uh we're going to read the first book of the Hardy Boys series, The Tower Treasure by Franklin W. Dixon. Uh, I fully expect that this is not going to hold up. I, I, I'll explain in more detail when we, when we talk about it next time, but like, I have intentionally chosen a book that while it was a springboard for me at a certain time into things that like I got more into... I kind of expect it's not going to hold up great. However, modern editions do have a motorcycle on the cover. Um, <laughs> and actually, the motorcycles are in the very first chapter. I... So thematic. I'm excited. I've never read any Hardy yeah. Boys or Nancy Drew. I just skipped over them completely. Yeah, it's definitely a book where... Um, there was a time in my life that I read quite a few, um, Hardy Boys books and, um, but it's been long enough ago that my recollection of them in particular is pretty, uh, hit and miss. So I'm, I'm excited to revisit it and see how I feel about these books. If they, if they kind of work for me still as mysteries um, or or not, as the case may be. Uh, so so that's what we'll find out next time. Is is this <laughs> any good? 
Should you read Hardy Boys? Awesome. Um, it's also, <laughs> I think, the oldest book that we've done so far. I have so many questions about Hardy Boys versus Nancy Drew, but we'll get there. Yeah, them. yeah, I, I know, I know okay. some things about those things because I read a lot of Nancy Drew as well. <laughs> in any case, uh, the music used in this podcast was licensed by Epidemic Sound, and uh, transcripts were generated by otter.ai. Have a question or comment for the team? You can find us on Twitter at dog8mybookpod and on Instagram at mydog8mybookreport or by emailing at dog8mybookreport at gmail. We'd be super excited to know what books you loved growing up. And uh, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll yeah. See you. You, you won't see us. You'll hear us. Yeah, You'll hear us hear you. next time. You you are invisible to all of our <laughs> senses. 